welcome to this special episode 100 of the SaaS Revolution Show. For the past three years and 99 episodes, I've had the pleasure to talk to founders, operators, and investors leading the SaaS revolution around the world. It all started from a fascination with SaaS and a desire to learn more. In the past three years, I've seen the SaaS revolution get stronger and more impressive in an incredible fashion. The podcast is aimed to showcase the achievements founders from all parts of the world have and will continue to do so in the future. Our intros, music, and style of questions have changed. What has remained is the desire to unravel the SaaS revolution story and get some of the vital lessons and tactics from our guests so listeners can turn their SaaS up to 11. For this 100th episode, I want to take you back to some of our pivotal episodes and the practical advice bursting from them. Choosing what to feature was in no way easy, but we tried to cover as many subjects as possible. Whether you've been with us from day one or have joined us along the way, I hope you'll find the SaaS Revolution Radio Hour an interesting and helpful lesson. Before we get to it, I want to tell you about a special promotion we're running alongside this episode next week in New York. We're putting on stage of 27 SaaS superstars in front of an audience of 400 founders, executives, and investors. To mark our 100th episode, we're offering a $100 discount on tickets. Just go to sasdoc.com forward slash on tour forward slash city forward slash New York and use the code NYC Revolution 100. Now on with the show. We start where the show itself started with my interview with Mark Roberge. When I spoke with him, he was still the CRO at HubSpot and recently published the Sales Acceleration Formula. The book has gone on to become a bestseller. In this episode, Mark started off by telling me about the formula. Especially in the early days, it, it feels like there's 20 fires going on and you only have enough water to put out three. <laughs> you know, and your ability to put out the three that uh, that were really going to prevent the house from you know, you know, burning down is kind of the key to your execution. So it, it take it makes sense to kind of take a step back and try to do some sense making around your personal journey. And for me, it was predictable revenue, uh, predictable, scalable revenue growth. Um, sounds kind of obvious, but like, that's really what we're trying to do, especially in early stages. And there were four tactics that I really wanted to rally around. One was hiring the same successful salesperson every time. Two was training them in a very predictable way. Uh, three was providing them with the same quality and quantity of demand every month. Mm-hmm. And four was um, holding them accountable to the same predictable sales process against that demand. And I figured if I could execute on that, those four things, it's like a mini machine in a way. And that would likely increase my ability to achieve the mission of, of predictable, scalable revenue growth. But we then talked about some key components that make it work that are written between the lines. Unsurprisingly, it all starts with building the right sales team. Hiring is the name of the game. So you, you, you've created this sales machine, right? Mm-hmm. And, That's right. Yeah. And, and in terms of, let's say, one of those elements, this, this hiring and, and you know, hiring the same salesperson or the, the, that you need that fits the mold. Um, now, in terms of sort of hiring, would you say that you know, world-class hiring is the most important driver of, uh, of sales success or the most important driver of this formula? Absolutely. And I think everybody says, yeah, it is. But then it's really hard in the execution, you know, front line to stay true to that. You know, it's like, you know, if, if you talk to a, a, a head of sales and they're going into a busy day and they've got this team meeting at 9 a.m. to like really invigorate the morale of the team, and then they have this big customer pitch at 11 to, you know, for that deal that's going to save the quarter. And then they have a final interview with a candidate um, at four o'clock. And you ask them like, which, where are they super prepared? And where are they kind of trying to cut, cutting corners? Well, it'd be great to be super prepared for everything, but like, they're probably going to prioritize the big team meeting and the big pitch and sort of win the interview. Right. And, and the interview arguably is the most important decision on the table that day. Mm. Right. It's like, I mean, that deal is great, but what if you found that next rock star that's going to be with you for five years and be your number one rep? Or what if you made a hire in that interview that turned out bad and wasted your time for six months? I mean, these are, these are like really critical decisions that are easy to be sort of like, I guess, half ass in a way um, in the moment. Um, and we, it's probably the most important thing to do. So when I, when I was kind of faced with these 20 fires going on, when we were three people in the garage and I looked at, okay, 
hiring, training, managing. There's actually, I, I kind of have a vision on how I can do an A plus job across all three, but I can't do that. It's literally 150 hours a week and I'm willing to do 80, but like, I'm going to have to cut corners here. And where am I going to cut? And I, I made the conscious decision to cut corners on the training and managing and really try to do an A plus job on hiring. Um, figuring that if I hire exceptionally well, um, I'll get some rock stars. And even if I don't do a phenomenal job at training and managing them, rock stars will figure out a way to win. Versus if I don't get rock stars in and I get a bunch of Bs and maybe a few Cs in here, even if I'm awesome at training and managing them, it's going to be an uphill battle. So I literally spent like probably 40 to 50% of my time when we were a small, small organization, just going out and trying to source and interview and recruit the best possible sales team. No hire is more important than the SVP. Who is the ideal candidate, according to Mark? Is that sort of failed entrepreneur who had formal training in the back, in, the, in their past. So maybe they started their career in the early 20s at Oracle or EMC or Salesforce, and then they got the, the entrepreneur bug and did a couple startups, maybe did one themselves as CEO and failed, maybe ran BizDev or something. I like that one a lot because they have the formal sales training. Clearly in their ventures and entrepreneurship, they probably have that sort of used to that really roll up your sleeves, think about process, et cetera. The third component, which hasn't been discussed yet, that's so critical, is that ability to help you accelerate through your product market journey. Because oftentimes when you're bringing on your first salesperson, the most value that you're going to get from that person and the eventual team they'll build is not necessarily the early revenue, but the early customers and feedback that you get in testing out your model and iterating, et cetera. And a traditional salesperson is going to go out there and make calls with your elevator pitch that you tell them, and it's not going to work. And they're just going to be like, it's not working and throw up their hands. Versus the entrepreneur is going to take a much more consultative, almost like a product, um, somewhere between like a product management and a salesperson discussion with these folks, understand where their head's at, understand how they're thinking about the problems you're looking to solve, understand the terminology they're using, and be able to come back with, with great feedback um, to help you iterate quickly and, and hone in on product market fit. So that's the one unique skill set I think is so, so important in the early phases of a, of a company journey that that entrepreneur candidate can bring to the table that the others cannot. As we talked, there was one question that was on my mind. As products were getting better and better, and most SMB SaaS companies relied heavily on self-service, were we heading for a time when amazing products no longer needed salespeople? Here is what Mark had to say. The repositioning of the focus of product development around the needs of the decision maker and VP and moving it more toward the, the um, early phases focused on the end user and complementing that focus with a go-to-market strategy that makes the end user the decision maker, enabling them to adopt software without getting approval from the C-suite, without getting approval from IT, without getting approval from finance. I think that's the winning formula that's very difficult to find and execute on, but when you have it, you're going to crush it, especially in a SaaS business. And in that case, like, you know, you can use sort of cookie crumbs along the way to get adoption, to initial adoption, to get some purchase, to get expansion of both the purchase as well as the usage without ever needing to talk to those folks. And that's phenomenal. I think, you know, one of the ones that's been around more along those lines, I don't know if most people would classify as SaaS, but like Dropbox, you know, being very, very successful at, you know, getting a lot of usage and then expanding that usage over time without talking to them. But even in their case, um, you know, you, you, you have situations where, you know, the CIO of Fidelity finds out that of their 80,000 employees, you know, 30,000 are using Dropbox without, you know, his or her permission, yeah. <laughs> you know, which can be an enormous security threat. And that's not, you know, I don't think the CIO gets over that hurdle, like, of, of their research around sort of the Dropbox for business um, package and whether it meets their security needs on online. Mm. You know what I mean? I think like even in that case where you've got a company who executed so phenomenally on the humanless adoption cycle needs salespeople out there. And this is in fact happening with them, uh, needs salespeople out there to have those handshakes in sort of the biggest of customers with the most influential decision makers. Mm. Right now that's the extreme case. I, I do think that like, as you execute these SaaS businesses, um, and you know, I, I, you know, often talk to these entrepreneurs, they'll say, well, when, you know, how do we know when to introduce a salesperson? How do we know when we should pass a company over to sales? And my counsel there is, 
try for the you know the Slack Dropbox model. Try to do all of this with no one right out of the gate. See if you can get people to your product, adopting your product, buying your product, expanding your product, succeeding with your product without anyone. Chances are you're going to fail somewhere. If you're not, call me, I want to invest, right? But but chances are that you're going to fail at some point. And wherever you're failing on the conversion rate, throw some people at it. And don't throw people at it by in the in the frame that you're th- waving the white flag and you're giving up and you're going to have to have a team there, throw some people at it to see if they can diagnose what's going on, and then step back and ask yourself: Is this a problem we can we can solve and still dehumanize, or is it just a reality that we're going to need people there? In the HubSpot context, for us with a marketing software, we were never able to get anyone to buy without people. You know, we were we were super super successful at getting folks aware of our mission. We were super, super successful at educating them on inbound marketing and our product without talking to them. Thanks to Mike Volpe, our CMO and our team. Mm-hmm. But we were never able to get them over to buy-in. And probably just because like inbound marketing, it's it's a it's just a lot to absorb. It's not like you're gonna do this for a day and, and see tons of leads flowing in. You've got to commit to it and you got to, there's kind of a personalized discussion on how to adapt this to your particular business and it required a person. And that's fine. We launched it. We, we built a huge inside sales team and brought on 10, you know, 14,000 customers with a really successful business around it. It was just the reality of our mission. Mark Roberge is currently a senior lecturer at Harvard University and is involved with companies such as HubSpot, Drift, and Insight Squared. Even though Mark Roberge believes there will always be room for sales, my guest on episode 51, Nadim Hussain, argued that marketing is eating sales. Superior products no longer needed a longer sales process with many decision makers on the way, but instead one fan that spreads adoption. To get that one fan, marketing is far more important than sales. Here is Nadim expanding on that. The modern salesperson as being like a Navy SEAL, right? Um, and think of the the previous type of generation of salesperson as being more, you know, uh, a 19th century infantryman, you know, say in in the U.S. Civil War, for example. Very, very different soldiers. And what the Navy SEAL has is that they've got the power. There's a lot fewer of them, um, but they have the power of satellites in the sky. They can, you know, have call-in drones and airstrikes. They've got um, all this technology behind them is air cover. So the role of marketing is to be that air cover. Um, and in the old days, salespeople didn't have that quality of, of air cover. Now it's a lot more precise, a lot more targeted, a lot more effective. So as a result, uh, you have this world where the, the salesperson might get involved at in a much smaller percentage of the process of the, of the timeline, but they have a much greater impact. So the need for salespeople has never been greater. It's not diminished. It's just the amount of time or the amount of the process they own is, uh, you know, is, is much smaller percentage. So that's kind of what I think of as you know, automation is eating the human powered process. And I think marketing is eating sales. What's behind that. You know, the, the, it's not just me making this up. These are trends that are, we're all experiencing just from the idea of, uh, you know, internet and, and mobile. Uh, you know, I, I lived through, I moved here to the Valley in 2000, the first generation of the internet, but really this current generation of what's happening is much more interesting where data is exploding like never before. Uh, the amount of channels has exploded. Uh, marketers certainly feel that. Consumers, uh, you know, benefit from that. Uh, and their consumer behavior is changing. You know, whether you're, you know, buying a pair of sneakers or you're buying enterprise software, your behavior has changed. Uh, in a way to, to reflect those new channels and, and new preferences. So I think all those things are really leading to the fact that marketing and automation are, are more and more important. How should you organize your marketing efforts and team? Let's start with your first hire. So I think the first hire has to be someone who's a multi-hat hire. Um, and I'll explain that in a second. But I think that the timing of that, I think you hire them uh, as soon as you can. Uh, you know, I'd say as soon as you have an MVP um, or as soon as you feel you can afford them, but certainly, certainly one of the first ten people, probably one of the first five. Um, and as, as far as what I mean by multi-hat, if you think of the minimum viable marketing team for you know typical sort of four or five-figure SaaS product, um, 
you need a variety of you need some product marketing, which I'll include sales enablement, messaging, and positioning. Um, you know, anything branding related, I, I put into product marketing in the early stage. Um, you need that demand gen skill set. So everything from um, you know, you know, email content, copy, ops, um, all of that sort of I'd say is a second skill set, and, and it's pretty different than the product marketing skill set. Um, and then the third type of skill set. Uh, would be then around you know, creative, uh, right? Basic design, website, etc. So even if you have three very very skilled people, uh, you're looking at a minimum team of three. Realistically, now obviously the startups are about doing the impossible, so you have to, you've got to do those three jobs in one person. Um, now you've got two pads. You know you could go raise a, a ten million dollar Series A, go hire all three people. Uh, if you can do that, definitely do it. Um, more likely you don't have that luxury so you can really hire one person at best and you've got to find a way to get those three jobs done. Now, it's not as impossible as it sounds. You can get one person that can maybe do two of those jobs and then uh, f- find a contractor for the third. So th- th- that's my very tactical advice. At the time when I spoke with Nadine, demand gen was a loosely used term that few people understood. While this has improved, I still think it could use a bit of an explanation. Here is Nadim on it. The good news for startups, whether you're at our stage or even much earlier, is that you don't need that many things to work well. Uh, you just need a couple of things. So, so it's first of all, our our customers are people that are bigger companies, so public companies that are, uh, or maybe about to go public, so, some very large companies, and they have a different set of challenges, right? It's really becoming very, very data driven and optimizing their spend is is really a critical need. Um, at our stage. The re- reality is you need to have good enough data. You, you can be good at one or two things. So to your, to your question, what techniques do you need to be good at? It just depends. You know, for us, um, it is a, a bit more of an enterprise sale, uh, requires, uh, you know, a, a bit more education as far as, you know, changing your mindset from believing in a world of single-touch marketing analytics to multi-touch, for example, is becoming much more accepted but that does require some wrapping your brain around it. So we found that trade shows were very effective in our first year. You know, I was there myself, uh, it required some interaction. So that was very, very effective. Um, we found that outbound uh, prospecting was, was very effective. Sort of referrals were uh, the way we got a lot of our business in the beginning, asking for intros in, into companies. So that's what worked for us. We didn't, in the early days, didn't do a lot of, um, uh, very early days, didn't do a lot of um, formal demand gen. And then later on, so so say, uh, you know, in terms of stage, say when we were about 10 people, uh, we started doing, you know, you know, sort of email nurturing. We built sort of target lists, um, started doing some some basic, later on, some content syndication, so, so through, through various channels, et cetera. When it comes to inbound, Nadim is convinced that it's the wrong strategy for SaaS. Inbound style of content marketing is relevant to most SaaS companies. I, I think... The idea of inbound marketing, I think, has done a lot of damage to to, to good marketing, if if I can say that. Um, and the reason is it's it's sort of propagated this idea that oh, if you if you build it, they will come, right? Let the SEO gods determine what your future is as a SaaS company. The, 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 you know, good luck if that's your approach. That's not going to work for the vast majority of SaaS companies. Is of course you need to have good content. You need to have um, you know a point of view, but really think about promoting it right actually there's content and there's sort of channels through which you promote something uh, if you're hubspot you can get away over the years you've built up all this um you know search engine credibility that's great you can get away with that and you have to get away with that because the price points early on were very low mm. uh, they've done a phenomenal job of, of growing the price points since then um but for the majority of SaaS companies you know you create that one asset that tells your point of view of course, it's on your website. So if you get organic traffic, someone will come across it. That's a no-brainer. But what I'm suggesting is spend some money also promoting that content, right? Uh, there are channels through which you can spend money to promote uh, your content and, and get leads. And, and that might be a very good idea. Um, and to do it early on, if you do it – in fact, I think uh, Mark Andreessen's talked about this, right? You know, If you do that early on, then you're actually proving that you have a scalable business – if you don't spend any money on marketing early on, all you've proven is that uh, you know that you don't know how to scale the business going forward. So, so that's kind of my, my, my point. 
With all that in mind, where do you actually begin with marketing? Nadine believes it should be by getting your positioning right. So start with a point of view. You know, why do you exist? Uh, you know, don't be afraid to, to to write down a positioning statement. So I would I would Google positioning statement that you're going to find a couple of good ones. But it's basically a statement that says, you know, uh, you know, for example, you know, Bright Funnel is a marketing analytics platform for data driven B two B marketers that want to connect marketing to revenue and unlike other platforms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, so um, you know, for, for us, those differentiators would be really about simplicity, power, you know, completeness, et cetera. But what is that for your company, right? Write down that statement and come back to it and really understand um, that you're living up to it. And so, so have a point of view, have a market position and that'll change over time um, and then find ways to propagate your voice out there in the market. Um, and then that's hard, obviously, right? I mean, obviously you can write blog posts, you can try to get your, your name out there, but, uh, but I think that's kind of where you find some channels uh, to then reach your audience. Um, you know, in the first year you might find that you're sort of t- talking into a, into an echo chamber. You're not even hearing anyone. You're just hearing your own voice coming back. But over a couple of years, it really does compound this idea of people hearing your name, knowing what you stand for. You know, that, that's why pivots are expensive, obviously, because you're changing what you stand for. But I'd say figure out who you are and, and let people know that. When I spoke with Nadim, he was CEO and co-founder of Bright Funnel. The company was recently acquired by Terminus at the end of 2017. Positioning is such an important topic that we recently devoted a whole episode to it by bringing in April Dunford. To me, she's the world's foremost expert on positioning, and she said it on the episode, Everyone Gets Positioning Wrong. From the nimble startups to the big behemoths, she's experienced it with each of her companies. Company after company after company, we would get into problems. We would think they were sales problems or marketing problems, but actually the problem was that we didn't clearly define this is the market we're going to win in. These are our key differentiators. These are the people we're going after and the component pieces that together make up positioning. And so what I found was that as I went from company to company to company, it was if there was one big problem we had to solve, it was that. And then later on, as I got working with startup incubators and I'm doing a little angel investing and I'm sitting on some boards, it's so consistent. At some point, every startup struggles with positioning. And if they get it wrong, everything downstream in marketing and sales is terrible and is operating under this handicap of this weak positioning. If that hasn't convinced you, here are the clear signs that a company is having major issues with positioning. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a handful of really clear signs that you see very consistently when the positioning is weak. So particularly my background is B2B. Most of the companies I've worked with are B2B. I'm super comfortable in B2B, less comfortable in B2C. Uh, But in B2B SaaS startups, what you'll get is you will see this incredible friction in the mid funnel. So your salespeople will say, man, like I got to do three calls with these people and demo the stuff over and over and over. And then suddenly a light goes on. Oh, you're this. And the weak positioning is what's happening in the first three calls where they're like, I don't actually get what this is. So that's one sign. You'll get this thing where it takes your salespeople or your marketing process too long to get to this lights on moment where the, where the prospect says, yeah, I get it. I get why I would need this. That's the first sign. The second sign you'll get that is also very common is people will, your prospects will misposition you. So they will say, oh, you're a CRM, right? And you'll say, no, we're not a CRM. Oh God, no, no, we don't do that. And then you'll explain what it is you are. And they'll say, hmm, so your database. No, no, we're not a database. <laughs> and so you'll get that confusion. And so you'll see it in sales calls. You'll see it in the dialogue you're having with customers over email that they'll be like, oh, so you compete with Salesforce. I mean, no, we don't compete with Salesforce. That's not who. And so what it means is that the customer can't figure out your positioning. So they're doing the job in their head and you don't like what they're coming up with. (laughs) And again, that results in this friction in the middle of your funnel. Um, the other thing I commonly hear from founders that have a positioning problem is they'll say, you know what, April, people love our shit. They love it. 
customers, we have zero churn. Like when we get a customer on, they love it. They use it forever. It's fantastic. But getting them on takes forever. And so if I can figure out how to, you know, my happy customers, you know, they need to actually use the stuff before they feel the joy and the amazingness and the magic of what we do. That's a positioning problem. If your thing is so amazing that your existing customers are like, oh, we love it. We can't let it go. We can't live without it. Uh, it, there's there's got to be a way to get your prospects to that place faster. And usually what it means is your prospects are spending too much time in this zone where they're saying, I don't know, I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure if it's for me. I'm not sure of the value of it. I'm not sure it's worth switching off what I'm doing now. I just don't get it. While there is no manual on doing positioning right, she's working on it as you're listening to this, there is certainly a place to start from. When I do this stuff with clients, what I usually say is, look, I'm going to start with where you're having success right now. So you have super happy customers right now that are jumping up and down, that don't turn off your thing. They love you. What, when you talk to those customers, who did they compare you to? And start with that. Let's write down like everybody, everybody that they, your customers think is a competitive alternative, which by the way, might include do nothing or hire an intern or whatever. So we figure out that. Then the next piece we have to figure out is, okay, those customers picked you for a reason when they compared you to those people. Why? So you must have some secret sauce that no one else has. You must have some special stuff. So let's write it down. Let's, think, let's not think about value yet, but let's just think about features. There's a whole bunch of stuff you can do that no one else can do. I figure that out. Then the next thing you look at is you say, okay, if those are my key features that no one else has, the alternatives don't have, how does that translate into value for customers? And that's usually where you start getting into this. You know what? Our value themes out in a couple of themes. Like we're not providing value across the board. We're actually really just saving people time or we're really just helping them solve this one particular thing. Then the next thing you do is you say, all right, now I know what my value is. Who really gives a crap about that? Because not everybody does. So there's, if I look at the market of, you know, the ocean of people I could market my stuff to, why wouldn't I just focus on the people that really, really care about the narrow set of things that I'm really, really good at? So then when you look at that, then you say, okay, well, what market am I in? Well, the context I weave around that is the one that makes sure that my value is utterly, completely obvious to those people that really, really care. It may seem daunting, but the effect of working out your positioning and repositioning, if you deem it necessary, can be priceless. You know, I worked at a company where, you know, we did a reposition out of the general CRM market into a very specific niche CRM market. And um, we had been kind of sitting at 2 million revenue for like three years. And we did this repositioning. And in the next 18 months, we went from 2 million to 78. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes you get this, you know, just things actually take off uh, because, again, you're doing this better job of expressing what you are, bringing the value to the front, doing a better job of targeting who cares about that. So the whole thing downstream works better. Here is one more story of a company repositioning itself. There's an example I use a lot of a company here in Canada that sells, uh, they're, they're basically robot guys and they, they started out selling robots and eventually they came up with this robot and it, it, it's a, it's a thing that drives around in a manufacturing plant and delivers things from one line to another. And so at the beginning they were always positioning it as a robot. And the interesting thing is all, everything that makes them special, you know, the fact that it drives around, it's got sensor technology, it's full of artificial intelligence, it's got mapping, all those things are actually not robot, right? So when they went in and said, hey, we have a robot, everybody's like, oh, we got robots, they do a stupid repetitive thing, they pick up a thing and put it in a box. And they're like, no, 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 our thing is so special, it's artificial intelligence, it's different. Um, and eventually what they did with their positioning is they started positioning themselves as self-driving cars. The interesting thing about that repositioning is all their interesting value, the fact that it drives around, the fact that it's full of artificial intelligence and sensors, that became obvious within the context of self-driving car. Of course you drive around, it's a self-driving car. (laughs) Um, the second thing was that if you look at how they executed on that positioning, um, those guys went whole hog. So they, if you look at 
the vehicle itself has little white lights on the front and little red lights on the back. And they're literally not functional. They're there strictly to drive home this positioning of this thing is a car. Look, it's got headlights and brake lights, even though they don't do the function what you think they do. If you look at the way they've named their features, like if they have a feature for managing a bunch of these things together and it's called fleet management because that's what you would call it if it was a bunch of cars together. Um, and then the look and feel, the branding of their website, everything, it, it looks like you've gone to a car website and I'm looking at Toyota or something. I mean, everything in what they do is kind of connected to this positioning of this is what we are and this is the value we deliver. April will bring her step-by-step methodology of positioning your SaaS to SaaStock 18 in Dublin. There she'll be joined by 100 other speakers and 3,000 attendees for three days of learning, networking and connecting. For listeners of this special 100th episode, we're offering a 100 euro discount off on tickets. Head over to sasstock.com forward slash tickets and use the code SASREVOLUTION100. According to April, the whole organization needs to participate because positioning touches everything. How do you set up an organization to be in sync? According to Peter Jan Balton, CEO and co-founder of Showpad, that starts with how you set up the top of the organization for decision making. PJ and his co-founder and co-CEO, Louis Jonquier, have a very unique relationship creating the perfect foundations for making tough decisions. Yeah, so originally when, when, I started, when we started the company, um, I, I was the CEO of the company. Uh, Louis was, was more focused on, I, I actually don't remember what his exact title was, but he was m- more, a bit more focused on, at that time, definitely more the, the sales and also uh, the, a little bit the product side, um, although we, we both did a lot of product. Then when we started going to the US and Louis, my co-founder at that time moved to the US, we decided to really officially switch to uh, co-CEO titles because he would effectively run and build the US operation, although I also spend a lot of time there. But it's, uh, you know, if you want to attract talent in the US is what people like to work for, uh, somebody who's in charge and who has that title. And at the end of the day, Louis and myself, all important decisions we would take together. So I wouldn't take any major strategy decisions or, you know, thing, decide anything's in Europe or maybe even globally on a product level or on any other thing without discussing it with him and vice versa. So we've been historically, we've been working together with kind of like there always has been kind of like a, how you say it, some uh, some vagueness about like where does one, you know, what is like, it was not like that we fully put on paper or aligned or made it very clear to the company, PJ does this, Louis does this. And actually, if you have a, if you have a good collaboration between Louis and myself and then also with your team, it really helps because um, there's, you know, people can't, you know, if, if they're talking to Louis, they're talking to me. If they're talking to me, they're talking to Louis. So it's kind of like if, if you really have a great way of collaboration with your co-CEO, that can work. We actually have a very similar skill set. Um, and that's maybe unique in the co-CEO shifting because usually you see one technical co-founder and one maybe more business-oriented person mm-hmm. um, and, and they will have maybe also a co-CEO ship role and, and you know really have clearly defined responsibilities as an individual. Louis and myself had clearly defined responsibilities as co-CEOs and that's setting the vision of the company, attracting the best talent, making sure we, we focus on having a good roadmap making sure that um, sales, and if Louis would be in the US, he's of course more closer to the US sales team and I would be closer to the European sales team or customer success team. You can have really intense discussions as co-CEOs and I think that's good. If you don't have them, I think probably you have a wrong partner or wrong you know, co-CEO or however you want to call it. If, if you're working in a certain setup and building a company with somebody else, I do believe that uh, you need to have those tough discussions else there's if if you agree too much that would be strange another thing that helped pj and showpad had been giving the right guidance to the rest of the team but of course you still don't have to give feedback even if you hire extremely talented and savvy people who who know marketing or sales or customer success way better than you you're still going to have to give them feedback give them guidance even if they're 15 year older and have seen maybe a lot more uh, things it's still important to align them with kind of your vision your view on on how the market will evolve your view of the company you want to build the values that you think that are important and you just learn that by 
making a lot of mistakes, making, you know, on the hiring. I think that's the toughest part. I think there, that's probably one of the most important things as a CEO you can do is make sure you hire extremely good managers, good executives around you, and then make sure as well, set the standard very high to the people that they bring in and then try to be still, I'm, I'm still involved in, and Louis as well, every still, I mean, we're only 200 people, so mm-hmm. you can still, we interview a lot of people, but in the later stages of the interview process, I always like to be involved, have a chat with the people, make sure, you know, you, you ask the, the, the important uh, questions or not, it's not the important question, but, you know, try to make sure from a cultural perspective, you have a great person from, a, usually when a person gets to me, I'm pretty sure that from a skill set perspective, it will be checked then and people will have challenged that person and have scrutinized him or her. But at the end of the day, there's also something like gut feel and kind of like trying to probe if this person will be a good fit in the team. And that's something I still believe that having interviewed almost everybody here uh, in Europe, for example, I can quickly know um, if somebody will be a fit or not. It's in the nature of the game to make bad decisions. According to PJ, the key is to try to fail in the smallest of ways. We believe that we will build, build our solution and that then other agencies, content agencies, creative agencies would resell us and, and that we would, they would be um, um, the, yeah, the sales engine of, of our growth. And after one year of doing that, we had actually several resellers that were selling Showpad in a good way. We were making money. But the problem was most, of, and, but we did also some direct sales. Um, but the problem was that our product was changing so fast that the customers were unhappy because they weren't serviced in the, in the right way because all of the communication and service and sales ran through those resellers. And so that learned us like on paper, resellers or indirect models look really great, but you need to have a quite a mature product and a really good communication and documentation and and flows around that and we didn't have that and so we had to change that and it cost us quite some money because we had to buy away all all of the contracts from those resellers and stuff like that so that could have been that was like a near a small near debt experience already in the early stages of our company and also to change course as soon as you can when things are not working out we hired about three to four people. They're actually really good people. Um, but our the problem for for Chopin was that for some reason we didn't get we, we didn't get to the right traction as a as a company. There we weren't in in a certain yeah. In terms of customers in New York, we, we didn't find the right vibe. In terms of then growing the teams and making the right connections into like where we could see our company grow and scale there. And for some reason, New York wasn't a fit for us. And after three or four months, we said, okay, man, we, we hired some great people here, but longer term, we, we don't see it happening here. We were spending more time on the West Coast. There were more enterprise SaaS companies there that you know were closer to Showpad and, and more closer to our, you know, the sales and marketing ecosystem. And, and so we decided after three months in New York to, to close our office there and then move to San Francisco. And, yeah, it was tough because we had to let go of some really good people, actually, after only working together with them for a short amount of time and, and move the office. So those are some of the, yeah, those are some of the, the things. And for me, the lesson learned there is, yeah, we made our, it was a tough call at that time. Wrong decision to go to New York for us, but, um, but eventually we ended up in San Fran where uh, it's even more expensive uh, in hindsight. But, uh, but we, we, we really were able to, attract the right talent for Showpad. It was a great environment because from a partnership perspective and ecosystem and like other entrepreneurs and people who are just working on more of more similar things like Showpad, it was just a better environment to be in. These sorts of decisions are very important and a part of scaling to another market. The art is in fact so complex that at each conference we've devoted multiple sessions on scaling and internationalization. At our upcoming SaaS Stock on Tour New York event on June the 20th, we'll hear from a myriad of European founders both on and off the stage who've landed on the East Coast with their US operations. It's a unique opportunity to meet the roster of natives and adopted New Yorkers and Bostonians. Just a week to go, we're running out of space to so grab your ticket now. For listeners of this special episode with a $100 discount, just go to sasstock.com forward slash on tour forward slash city forward slash New York and use code NYCREVOLUTION100. 
Showpad has successfully created a category of recently passed 30 million in ARR and have kept up the aggressive year-on-year growth goals. What if you work in an environment where you're not simply a category creator, but a concept propagator? That was the experience Eric Santos underwent with Resultados Digitais, when the Brazilian entrepreneur decided to build a marketing automation tool, first to teach executives and companies in Brazil about digital marketing. At the time, in 2011, no one believed in it. Fast forward seven years, and he has over 10,000 customers and a channel program with over 1,500 agencies. How did he do it? Let's unravel. He first took these steps. Five, six years ago in Brazil, uh, we had a situation where uh, most of the companies and most of the people running those companies, they didn't even know that um, uh, online marketing was a, was a thing, was, a, was something that they could do to grow their business. Mm -hmm. So we kind of had to sell the concept first, and then we would sell the opportunity of having a, a solution to uh, help them do that. So most of our educational initiatives in the beginning were, weren't around our company or the product, were basically around the, the subject, about the, uh, the opportunities and the, the benefits that they could have if they did well online marketing. So that's a main tenet of our content marketing initiatives still to this day. Mm -hmm. But of course, over time, the market matured a little bit and then we were able to, uh, you know, get into more sophisticated discussions and also uh, introduce the product uh, in many different ways along the way. Um, the first one was, you know, education. So mm -hmm. we started um, creating content and uh, doing speaking gigs and that kind of stuff. Um, so that was really important because when we launched the product, uh, about a year later, uh, we already had 10,000 leads in our database. So that was the kind of the initial uh, set of uh, potential customers that we had, uh, mm -hmm. and they were already consuming our content. So the second thing we did was uh, customer discovery and customer development. And that was important because I, I felt really strong ab um, about the, you know, the demand in general, but I didn't know exactly what kind of product and what kind of level of service those customers would need here in Brazil. So we actually did, uh, for the first you know, 18 months, we did uh, something that we call internally mechanical Turk experiment. So we, we would try to sell the product, but without even having one line of code yet written. Uh, and we, uh, we did it ourselves. So let's say that, uh, a client would want, uh, to use a landing page creator someday. Mm -hmm. Uh, we would just create the, the landing page for them. They will send us the text and the images. We would just create the landing page ourselves and then, you know, publish to them. Uh, so that was the customer discovery phase. So we kind of fine tuned the roadmap a little bit, uh, and we, uh, felt exactly, uh, what kind of you know features and also the messaging that would uh, resonate better with uh, potential customers. And the third thing was the, the product development itself. So uh, since we have a such a broad platform, uh, it takes some time to get uh, something like meaningful uh, on the street. So that's why we we only launched the product um, a few uh, eighteen months after uh, starting the company. So the, the official launch was in August of two thousand twelve. So about 18 months after we started. Educating the market eventually became a movement. In that movement, he had a lot of like-minded members through the myriad of marketing agencies, but they didn't have a forum to meet and discuss and learn from each other. That's why he created the RD Summit, which would become pivotal in RD's growth. However, Eric established a few ground rules to make the user conference truly successful. The main component is not to make the conference about the company or mm. the product. Mm -hmm. So it's all about the content and the community. Uh, and it, it's a trap that I've seen uh, some, some other companies fall into. Um, so we, of course, we, uh, since we have the space, and usually it's my keynote speech, uh, I do talk a little bit about you know, our launches and strategy, but that's even like 20-minute thing, uh, mm -hmm. even in my presentation. So we try not to... Uh, uh, not to have anyone that's going to sell their products on stage. So uh, we call this word here in Brazil, in Brazil, Jabá, which is when you go to, you know, to a conference and they speak about 
um, your company rather than the, the, the you know any particular useful content. Mm-hmm. So, and the the bar that we have for our speakers here is that, and and I think that we achieve su- success when we reach that is that when we you uh, when you have a speaker finishing their presentation and then just sitting to watch the next speaker. Um, so we, we don't have that kind of uh, conference where, you know, the, especially the big shots, they come in, they do they get their gigs, and then they, you know, just get out and, and fly back to their, uh, to their places. So most of the people here, even the, the, the you know, the, the international guys like you or, or, or and Jaco or and Hanley, they stuck around for three days mm-hmm. here. So that's the kind of uh, bar that we have for in terms of content. And the other thing, I think it's uh, it comes down to experience too. So Sujan mentioned the Disneyland effect. That's something that we uh, we um, we're pretty fortunate. But at the same time, it's it's something that we did by design, which is we don't hire anyone else who work at the conference. Only our employees work at the conference, mm-hmm. except for of course like some maintenance and uh you know cleaning uh, activities doesn't make sense but even the the people who are handing out translation headsets there are the employees so we try to bring the uh, the experience you know a, a, a disneyland experience to the to the attendees as well so that they feel um they feel happy uh when they're there even if something goes wrong which always do you, you run conference you know how it is uh, but the idea that they have, they learned a lot, they mm-hmm. connect and they had a good experience there. Um, it's kind of, uh, the, 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 the basis for having them coming back next year and, uh, spreading the word too. So that's why I think that we grew from, uh, 250 to 8,000 uh, attendees in four years. And, uh, I think that that's a piece of advice that I, I'll give to other, um, SaaS entrepreneurs. But in the center of his success was building a good channel program. How did he first convince them? And the uh, the way that we capture those partners now, the way that we attract them, is basically through our inbound marketing activities too. So at first, we they were drawn by the content that we created uh, around online marketing. But now we also have another blog and another. Um, and another set of materials that we created specifically for them. So how to be a better marketing agency, how to, you know, set the prices for a service, how to onboard new customers, that kind of, uh, that kind of thing that we discuss in this uh, second blog. So that's our main channel for uh, acquiring and educating our partners. And then after they're, they're, um, they join the program, we work with them to make sure that they can sell our, our solution and their services to their customers and also uh, proper onboard and serve them after, after that. And I think the, the main thing that we learned along the way, even though we, we give them a commission uh, on the, the subscription, it's not something that's meaningful or uh, will move the needle for them. It, uh, the, uh, the, the value proposition that we sell to those partners is that they can sell high quality recurring revenue services on top of our software. So the commissions, uh, it's usually less than 10% of the services revenue that they can get out of the, uh, out of the partnership. Mm-hmm. So it's not meaningful as I mentioned, and, uh, it's something that we, we hear a lot from them. Uh, but if you, if you can find a partner that, with your specific solution can, you know, up their game and sell different kind of services, uh, especially, you know, regarding the marketing agencies, they're used to having, you know, just one-off projects, not very much predictability, that kind of thing. So we kind of solved the problem for them. So now they can sell different types of services and, uh, and can, they can prove ROI to their clients, uh, with their software. So that's a much more propelling uh, argument for them to join the program and okay. do the, the investment that they, do, they need to do on their end. Eric is another speaker joining us at SASLOP 18 in Dublin, where he'll dig much deeper into all of these topics. Remember that as a listener of this anniversary episode, you get a special 100 euro discount for that. Head over to sasslop.com forward slash tickets and use the code SASREVOLUTION100.
Eric's meticulous work in building a movement and establishing a partner channel program has been incredibly successful and needs no justification. The ROI is unmeasurable. But what if you do not have the resources for that? What are other ways out there to grow? According to Laura Roder, CEO at Bootstrap Meet Edgar, directly asking for an email is a much cheaper and scalable way of growing. She isn't shy of gating anything on her website, including her pricing and video demo. Laura calls it direct response marketing. What is that exactly? You know, direct response refers to making a direct ask of the prospect. So it's kind of like taking a sales process and putting it into marketing instead, which which just means you're not talking to someone one-on-one. Uh, and it's worth pointing out, by the way, that we don't have any kind of sales department at our company. We're, we're mm-hmm. no sales. We're all marketing. We're all SMB. We're all self-serve. Uh, so for us, we want to have, you know, that kind of power of a sales process, but leverage it to a larger marketing process. And, and direct response, what it's different from is kind of general branding uh, or, in, you know, it's something I see a lot in the software world. I think a lot of software thinks it's it's too cool for marketing yeah. or, you know, thinks you, you build a great product and people will come. Or there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding about like marketing around features. People build the software think that people care when they release a new version or a new feature, which which most people really don't. Uh, So direct response means, you know, we're collecting people's email address so that we can stay in touch with them. And so we can send them emails and say, hey, here's why you should buy Edgar. Here's an opportunity to do so. In a world that is often advocating not to gate anything, Laura is an absolute contrarian. She believes that in essence, B2B is billed to ask for emails. We've always been focused on on list building um, as our our main form of of how people buy. And, you know, the reason that people don't have asking for an email address as as their main call to action on the homepage is because they're afraid uh, of losing buyers, right? They say, well, but what if I'm ready to buy? And now you've set up this roadblock asking for my email address. The truth is that you do not discover a homepage and then buy business software in the same visit. I mean, it, you do that for almost no product. Like if, if you haven't observed yourself as a consumer, it's a really interesting thing to do to start, you know, once you hit that purchase button, kind of reverse engineering what you've done. And I don't know if people are aware of this or not, but it's kind of insane, like buying something for $8 on Amazon, how many reviews you read, how much comparison shopping you do. Um, people don't just impulse buy I mean, a lot of things, especially online when you have that research there to do, but especially business software, right? You're going to be looking at different options. You're going to be considering how this can work for you. So the whole idea is that we want to make it easy for the customers to learn more about us. We don't want to just hope that they remember to Google us, hope that they remember to figure out what we do. We want to make that really easy for them. So if we have their email, we know that they're interested because... They've told us that, right? So we can say, here are reviews. The customers have written about me and Edgar. Here's a longer explanation of what we do. Here's how we're different from some other tools you might be familiar with. Basically, we're not just hoping and expecting that people are going to take the time to do all this research. We're providing that for them so that they can more easily make the decision on whether we're going to be a good match for their company. By gathering emails and getting them through a carefully crafted marketing automation flow, she never ends up doing other resource draining marketing initiatives. We haven't done um, most of the things that you listed. And so we don't have an affiliate program. Um, We haven't done partner marketing. Uh, We haven't done like partner webinars. And I think something that is really important to us is, is getting really clear on what we don't do. Because all of those are... Excellent marketing strategies, very effective and very time consuming, you know, running a good affiliate program that works well and drives traffic that converts is, is a huge marketing strategy. It's not just like we're going to throw up an affiliate program and, and see what happens. So I think it's important being really clear on what you don't do and not just dabbling in those things, you know, like another thing we don't do is write guest posts. So it's not like we just like sometimes write them. We just Mm -hmm. don't write them. We experimented with it for a while. We decided it wasn't the best strategy for us. And so now we don't do them at all. And I think it's so important to say, no, we're not going to do any partner webinars. We're not going to do any guest posts. I'm not saying we'll never change that strategy, but it allows us to just be really focused on the things that we do. Uh, And we also do paid, paid acquisition, Facebook ads and, and AdWords. Instead, what she focuses on beyond direct response marketing is content marketing and speaking engagements. Laura was the one who had reached out to me to be on the podcast. Little did I know it would become one of the most interesting episodes. 
admire Laura for steadfastly doing things her way. I asked her why that was. I I love being bootstrapped. Uh, it would be really hard for me, even if I raised money, to to not be profitable. Um, you know, when when you raise, you're kind of that's the whole idea is that you're saying I'm going to use this to grow quickly, and it's going to be a while until we catch up to profitability. I think I would just be so nervous that we're doing something unsustainable that that was never going to work out. So it's just a different model. It's a different way to to run a business, but. I love being bootstrapped because you really have to prove your worth. You know, we don't make money unless customers think that the software is is worth their money. And I think it creates a great cycle of really, really having to prove yourself every day. Your customer service has to be good enough that people stick around. Your product has to be good enough that people buy it. Your marketing has to be good enough that, that people are educated about it. So I just love that it, it kind of forces you to be honest when you're bootstrapped. Meet Edgar remains bootstrapped to this day and recently reached 4 million ARR and 7,000 customers. Meanwhile, in February of this year, Laura launched a second company, Ropig, an alert management tool that breaks down the fire hose of events from monitoring apps. We've heard six different viewpoints and elements of growth. Some come as part of the same path, others are complete alternatives. I encourage you to listen to the full episodes with each guest, which you can find in the show notes. Even with all the information at hand, making the decisions about what to do to grow remains the hardest part. As Neeraj Agrawal, general partner of Battery Ventures, told me, many founders have a very clear idea about success and a very murky idea about how to get there. To negate that, he came up with the mantra for success, T3D2. Let's hear how he came up with it and what it stands for. It became clear to me that we were getting the same question, the same questions from these great founders who, who kept asking, uh, a couple of things. One is, what is success? Uh, what is uh, appropriate level of growth? Um, you know, how should I think about this journey? And it, it was very interesting because they're they're very focused on the the here and now, but but not the kind of roadmap of how do you get from here to success. Interestingly, almost all of them had a very common perspective on success. They all wanted to get to hundred million of ARR. Mm-hmm. And they all wanted to get to, you know, ideally a, a billion dollar outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the path from where they were to get there was, was not, not clear to them. You know, should they grow from, you know, one to 10? Should they, how, how do they think about this? And then how do you resource against it to, to actually make it happen? And so we realized through the companies we were working with that there was this kind of pattern that was, that was developing and, and that there's a kind of a natural way to, to sequence growth, both from a financial perspective, but, but also operationally, kind of what are the, the key gotchas along the journey? And there are some kind of counterintuitive risk points along the journey. You think that the bigger you get, the easier it should get. And, and there are some points along the journey, which I would argue are, are uh, incredibly risky points that if founders aren't thinking about in advance, they could be gotchas for them. And mm-hmm. so that was kind of the reason we developed this journey mm-hmm. and this framework. And basically, at a, at a high level, uh, just to capture it, we think about the first phase is product market fit. Mm-hmm. Second phase is get to 2 million of, of ARR. Mm-hmm. And then from there, the T2D3 acronym takes over. So you go from 2 to 6 to 18, and then double, double, double to get to 100 plus and recurring and, you know, I think a billion dollar outcome. Before the mantra kicks in, you need to have found product market fit and to have reached 2 million ARR. Here's Neeraj's take on that. Ask the person you're talking to, so your champion at a customer, ask them, hey, how would you justify this, this purchase with your boss? Kind of what's the business justification for this technology? And that, I thought, was, it sounds so simple, but again, people are very happy talking to you. Um, I mean, prospects are happy talking to you. Uh, nobody wants to say no. Nobody wants to be the person that says your idea is not a good idea. And having, um, having a crisp way to articulate the value of your offering to make sure that will, people are willing to pay for it and that they're willing to prioritize it, right? Those are two different things that both need to come together for your company to achieve this kind of $2 million in ARR. So they gotta, it's got to be a high enough priority pain point and they got to be, be willing to bring it to their boss and justify spending money on it. Before you embark on the tripling and the doubling, be sure that you're aiming to build the company for it. The T2D3 framework 
is a little biased towards um, I would describe kind of mid market and enterprise uh, customers. So we think about it as thirty thousand to eighty thousand average deal size. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to I do want to mention that because there's a another playbook and. If you do the math, that probably means you know 40, 50, 60 customers to to land. Mm-hmm. And the, what I find here is the CEO is is really the person selling all of these uh, deals. They're they're bringing it in. They're looking for that commonality and pain point. Um, it's a it's a challenging stage. I would I would describe this one as probably one of the hardest ones to get to because you have to be willing to tolerate rejection. Um, but the thing that I, I would say I've noticed is many founders are, they're probably not, um, they don't value maybe their time as highly as I think they should in this phase. And I think about getting to a no quickly with a prospect as being equally valuable as getting to a yes. Points of tripling and doubling revenue are not chosen at random. A triple over a double isn't nice to have. On the contrary, there is a very good reason for that. And according to Neeraj, succeeding in the first triple Maybe the most important point of your growth. Just figuring out what, why why is triple kind of a good frame, you know, good framework for success. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we'll meet meet founders that think, hey, doubling is great, right? Why is that you know not good enough? You know, hundred percent when GDP is three percent, it sounds like a pretty good outcome, right? Um, and so I, I would argue that uh, what we've noticed in the pattern is. If you can triple in this phase, it really sets it up well for the next triple, which is actually the hardest part um, kind of in these first few phases is really that 6 million to 18 million. Uh, A lot of the infrastructure for that gets built in this phase. And I'll come back and talk about that. Um, Some some companies have experienced uh, faster than triple. um, And I believe that founders are now kind of feeling that, hey, maybe tripling is not good enough. And I would argue that it's not getting to triple in this phase. It's really kind of um, it's really it's good enough. But what's really important is getting to the eighteen to twenty million in the next phase. And whether you get from two to six or two to eight doesn't really matter. But if you have the infrastructure laid to get to eighteen to twenty going forward, that's super important. So um, we notice in the pattern that if you can triple here. That's a good goal. That's a good goal from a, a hiring perspective, team building perspective, cash consumption perspective, and so that's why we said you know triple here is is probably the right uh, the right goal. Uh, now, there's two ways to get there. Once I've noticed that once you can get to two million, it's actually not that um, statistically hard to get to six million. Um, meaning, you know, if an entrepreneur is good enough to get to two. They will sell and do really well and, and probably end up close to six, at six, you know, almost almost regardless of their approach. But what I what I realized is this is the this is the phase where they have to shift from being product market focused, customer focused, deal focused, to being much more organization focused. And that's actually a very hard transition for for founders or some founders to make, especially technical founders. Um, some technical founders believe that, you know, salespeople are overpaid, you know, that, you know, the hard work is being done by the engineers, but the glory is being, uh, captured by, by sales folks. Uh, and, you know, I, I'd make the argument that if you can build a company that has great product and great distribution, and you put those two together, you'll have an awesome outcome. You triple once. How do you go about it a second time? This phase I believe is the most predictive phase of long-term success. Okay. So it's if you go from six to ten, I think that you'll have a good outcome, uh, but it won't be a great. You know, it won't be one of the iconic SaaS companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, really getting to uh, this kind of eighteen million tripling this phase is is I think critical, uh, and it, it sets up a lot of success. The the engine that gets built here requires probably somewhere in the order of 15 to 20 sales reps uh, to really do this right. And that usually requires a second level of sales management. And let me explain what I mean by that. So early, the, early on, the CEO is selling everything. And then I mentioned the prior phase, you hire a VP of sales who might have 
you know, four or five reps that, you know, that team is selling. But the CEO, the CEO and the founder, they're all, that person's only two levels removed from an individual deal. And so it's pretty easy for that person to walk down the hall and talk to the individual rep and really have a sense of what's going on um, by just kind of brute force. In this next phase, when you get to 20 reps, and they're usually I find that somewhere around six to eight reps, there's kind of an ideal break point to introduce a, a leader. So once you're at this point, one VP of sales can't manage 15 to 20 people. And so you, you almost by definition need another layer of management. And so now you have the CEO, the VP of sales, you know, a kind of a director of sales and then an individual rep. So you are, you know, three levels removed from an individual rep, which means you're pretty far removed from the actual sales cycle and what's happening and your ability to kind of walk the halls and know what's going on with just 20 reps is much harder. Mm. Um, and so why do I bring all this up? I bring this up because this is where all of your kind of training, your um, hiring, the profiling really matters. If you get this wrong and you got to reboot your entire sales team, you've probably lost 12 to 18 months. And that usually is the difference between ending up being the winner in a category and being number two in a category. And if you end up being number two in a category, it used to be a pretty good outcome. When I first started in venture 10, 15 years ago, number two was pretty good. You still made a lot of money now. If you're number two, you, you get your money back maybe a little bit, but you got to be number one in a category. Going international was a big part of succeeding in all of this, particularly for US companies. There is an important thing to do right. And with this, we round off our anniversary episode. I hope it gives justice to the incredible amount of advice I've heard through the years. And even if you have been a regular listener, you've found something new in this packed version featuring Mark Roberge, Peter Jan Balton, April Dunford, Nadim Hussain, Neeraj Agrawal, Eric Santos, and Laura Roder. Please let us know how you like this episode as we plan to have more SaaS Revolution, the SaaS.radio hours like it. Leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Next week's episode, we'll have a special live recording with Drift's David Council coming live from SaaS.com tour on New York stage. Still time for a few tickets to join us there. Just head over to sasdoc.com forward slash on tour forward slash city forward slash New York and use the code NYCREVOLUTION100 for that $100 discount. Thank you all for the support over the last three years. Here's to the next 100 episodes and the growth of the SAS revolution. See you next time. <laughs>